0: Change is an undeniable force in each and every one of our lives. But how do you handle those changes? How do you handle the emotions and all the experiences that make up the fabric of your life? How do you navigate global shifts and the rites of passage that we are all going through right now? Today, I'll be joined by Dr. Scott Heberle. Scott has worked in hospice care and has experienced at providing end-of-life care to patients and their families. I personally met him through the School of Lost Borders, where I did a wilderness fast. We'll be talking about the way life forces you to constantly adapt, how to manage the crises that we are facing globally right now, and how you can gracefully transition from one stage of life to the next.
1: Welcome to Be Healthistic. The podcast that's more than just health and wellness information, it's here to help you explore your options across traditional and natural medicine so that you can make informed decisions for you and your family. This podcast illuminates the whole story about holistic health by providing access to the expertise of Drs. Steve and Drew Sinatra, who together have decades of integrative health experience. Be Healthistic is powered
0: by our friends at Healthy Directions. Now, let's join our hosts. Hi folks, if you like what you hear today and you wanna listen to future conversations on all things integrative and holistic health, subscribe to our podcast at BeHealthisticPodcast.com. Also, check out and subscribe to the Healthy Directions YouTube channel, which features video versions of our episodes plus extra videos you won't wanna miss. And finally, we have more with me, Dr. Drew Sinatra, my dad, Dr. Steve Sinatra, and other health experts at HealthyDirections.com. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Be Healthistic. Today, we have Dr. Scott Eberly on the show. This gentleman wears many hats. He is a hospice physician who began his medical career in the late 1980s, working as an AIDS specialist during that last great pandemic. He also became a wilderness guide at the School of Lost Borders in 2003, extending his focus of sitting with people physically dying to guiding those who are dying symbolically. He also does similar rites of passage work individually, offering counseling to those who are going through a major life transition. And I know Scott personally. He was my wilderness guide on a vision quest, vision fast that I did last year. And we live very close together here in only a couple miles away, actually, in Northern California. So I have the great pleasure of doing day walks with him, as we'll get into as well. And Scott, what a pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Oh, Drew, it's my pleasure as well. So uh, where to begin? Uh, so it, the bio, which I hadn't heard in a while, the work I, the way I hold it all together is to speak about myself while I'm doing rites of passage work, mm-hmm. which is to say I'm, uh, be it individually or a circle of people in the desert, like I was with you a year ago, or actually just the way I hold the storyline of the, um, what we're seeing in this uh, very difficult time, I see it through the lens of being a rite of passage uh, guide um and so just to say a little bit about that as an intro to where we're going uh rite of passage was coined by, the term was coined by um arnold van genep a belgian anthropologist back uh, over a century ago um and in a, in his original um description he uh named three different phases of a rite of passage uh different language for that uh his version is severance uh threshold and incorporation or something like that what i prefer to speak to is the dying the in-between, and the rebirth. And so thinking uh, in each individual person's life, when you end a marriage or you end a job or you are no longer a youth and now you're stepping into adulthood, all kinds of different rites of passage. And what's common to any of them is the old story, the old identity, the old names die away. You step into the in-between of there being no name, no clear story, uh, and then follows the rebirth, the incorporation and the other uh, way of naming it, into a new life, a new name, a new story. And what makes that map so vital and alive for me right now is never before in the history of the, I'll say modern history of the human race, have we ever ever had a time where we had such a global rite of passage on a massive scale. And I'm going back in particular to March, April, mm-hmm. uh, when uh, almost the whole world went into lockdown, massive pause button, many jobs, most jobs uh, either uh, ending or going into m- huge modified uh, way of being uh, lived out. Um, and along the way, just so many stories about what we take for granted in this world, about uh, how we live our lives, just end it, end it. And so we found ourselves in a global Mm in-between. And now, months later, I see us as being just, just beginning to imagine what a rebirth might look like uh, with great amount of struggle, uh, a lot of conflict, a lot of uncertainty. And I want to name that the time we're doing this recording is all of 10 days, 12 days after the murder of George Floyd and all of the demonstrations and all of the upheaval uh, that's happened since. And so um, to that global in-between um, now comes a whole new way of imagining how the old stories no longer serve us, are no longer tr- seen to be true by more and more people, and how uh, issues of racial injustice and the call for uh, truly uh, reforming some fundamental, deep institutional racism, it's absolutely to, in the forefront of our uh, our minds. Our, parts our uh, experience. Actually, um, the other thing I want to say, um, which I would have rather begun with, is in that great lockdown, uh, there was this massive crisis um, that began as a medical crisis. People dying or fear of being ill and fear of dying. And that then morphed into an economic crisis. People out of work, unemployment rising, the stock market crashing. And then that morphed into all of the different variations on the personal crises of how you survive during lockdown. Um, and with that comes fear, depression, risk of suicide, increased risk of addiction, lots of different troubles. And then the what how I would name the last two weeks is we now see something that's a, the collective personal, which is to say uh, on a massive scale, people raising their voices and saying, what has been happening is not in any way okay and acceptable anymore, not that it ever was. So anyway, rite of passage. Oh my God, are we in the middle of that?
0: So much to, to comment on there. I mean, there's multiple layers happening right now with this this rite of passage, right? What you just talked about. I mean, we, we have this global rite of passage with the coronavirus, everything being uh, upended. We, we People are losing their jobs. They're starting to wonder, if am I gonna be able to put food on my family's table? Will I lose my job? Can I pay my mortgage? And yeah, as a result, you have all these Emotions come up. We have fear. We have anxiety. We have worry. All the added stress, and then we have, um, you know, the death of George Floyd, which just adds a whole nother layer to this. And it's like, it just seems like there's multiple layers that are kind of building right now. It's like this, this, um, it's like a pressure cooker. We almost feel like we're in where things are just building tremendously.
1: Yeah, pressure cooker is a great metaphor. Actually, when I was walking my two dogs yesterday, I had them on a lead both of them, and encountered some people who didn't have their dog on the leash. And I snapped at them, self-righteously snapped at them saying, <laughs> get your dog on a leash. And afterwards, I'm going, whoa, where does that come from? Um, not the, the statement, but the, the tone and the energy behind it. And I think there's a lot of that frustration of um, just, how do I cope with being in this world right now? A
0: lot of that. There's, I mean, I'm seeing a lot of road rage. I'm seeing a lot of people yelling at one another on the streets. Uh, even at a crosswalk, I'm hearing people honking their horn at other people. It's just, it's, it's just a, an odd time or, yes, there's a lot of pressure building up inside.
1: Although then, then I want to balance that by also saying, and I'm very conscious of this and, and trying to, to live this out as well. I am much more likely to say a warm and friendly hello to a stranger that I cross when I'm hiking mm. my dog. That's really, truly much more common. Exactly. Um, and so, so there's also this sentiment of we're all in this together, and how do we go ahead and um, and show up as gracious, kind human beings? So it's not all just the pressure cooker and how it makes us snap, but it's how do we really show up in these times with an open heart?
0: Well, Scott, you know the 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 three phases of a rite of passage: the dying, the in between, and the rebirth. We sort of jumped right into this uh, during the coronavirus, into the in-between stage. Would you agree with that? Or did we actually have a dying stage before that?
1: Unlike any time in any experience I've ever had, this was as quick a death, social, collective death as I have ever seen. You go back to March, there was, I don't remember exactly, it was probably like the second week of March, where every single day, the information that would come across, and I'll speak for myself, changed my view of what I could and should and uh, needed to do day to day. Um, And that was the dying. It was like in the space of a week, we went from, oh, really, this pandemic is not a pandemic yet, at least I'll speak for myself, to a week later, not going out of the house and um, how do you go to the grocery store and is wearing gloves and a mask enough and just all of that. So uh, I want to name the dying as um, uh, all of a week or two, which is just unprecedented.
0: And, and typically speaking, let, let's kind of relate this back to a, a, a traditional vision fast, vision quest, where you're out on the mountain fasting for four days. And um, during that time, there's an in-between. And then also, obviously, when you come back, there's a there's an in-between phase as well. What we're going through right now seems like a very extended in-between phase. And, and do you... I mean, obviously you don't have a crystal ball in front of you, but, but how long do you see this kind of continuing on for, is it going to, are people going to realize what's happening when all of a sudden our lives return back to normal or will people start to really question things as they go along?
1: Uh, That's almost an impossible question to answer. Let me tease it out and say, um, in some ways we're always in between Hmm. every single day of our lives. What was true yesterday isn't true in the same way today. Um, And if we don't stay current with who we are inside ourselves, um, how we tap into our deepest self, our spirit, our soul, whatever words you want to use, if we don't do that on a fairly uh, consistent basis, then we're going to get stuck and then we're going to have to go through a a massive falling apart and breaking up of what no longer served. Um, I'm talking individually. So um, for me, the practice of being in between is, is a daily practice. For someone who's gone ahead and lived this way of being in between as consciously as possible, navigating difficult times perhaps will be, um, I wouldn't call it easier, but there's going to be a practice, a way, a a style of living that is supportive of the uncertainty of these times. For someone else who doesn't um, think in those terms, who's locked into one view or one job or one relationship, and all of a sudden that disintegrates, uh, then this, challenge of being in between can be overwhelming. Mm. Um, and so for me, the call, you know, I'll use the, the words uh, for your podcast, the call to be healthistic is a call to show up and be our open, vulnerable selves from day to day as best we can and know that we're going to muddle through and do it well some days and badly other days. But I want to say one more time, we're always in between and how we mm. learn to cope with that individually um, is in some ways the measure of how flexible and fluid uh, and alive our life is.
0: And do you want to speak to, you know, how would you work with someone right now in, in, in helping navigate this in-between phase? Is it, what, what would you sort of work with someone with, talk to them about?
1: Well, at first what I do is I don't do hopefully too much talking. I do a lot of listening. Uh, because so much of what I think is um, central to the human existence and, and the way we survive as a individuals and as a species is through story um, and the individual person's story about uh, who am I today? What is dying right now or has recently died? What is the present experience of being in between and uncertain and and all the fear and uh, challenge that comes with being in between? And also equally important, what are the ways in which I want to be open to the rebirth, the, um, the uh, new way of being in the world that I'm trying to bring in? Um, so, so for m- me as a rite of passage guide, it's a lot of invitation to do deep storytelling by the person I'm sitting with. And then as you got to see in the desert last year, then, when the time's right, mirroring back that person's story mm-hmm. by, as best I can, stepping into their shoes and literally telling their story back to them. So uh, two things, what could happen with that. One is, hopefully, if I do it well, I empower them to be able to experience what their gifts are and how they move through challenge. And um, then they also get to actually be uh, have the sense of really deeply being listened to. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, then, in a the circle of 10 or 12 people, then you augment that experience of being really heard in a profound way, which most of us seldom get to have in our lives.
0: Well, that's really where the magic happens, and that's where I was uh, blown away with, with what happened at the Vision Quest that you um, guided us through. Could you give our audience a little context as to what a typical Vision Fast or Vision Quest looks like, and then we'll kind of get into more details?
1: Sure. And actually, as an uh, opening to that, let me say we at the school uh, avoid using the term vision quest mm-hmm. um, for cultural uh, for concerns about cultural misappropriation. Um, wilderness fast is sort of the, the best way to put um, uh, to describe what we offer. Um, and then I want to quickly say uh, all of our ancestors, whoever we are, uh, were in some way practicing uh, wilderness fasting and our wilderness solo kinds of experiences in some form as a way of dropping down deeply and getting in touch with um, soul, spirit, mm-hmm. self. So uh, important to, to honor um, the practice with um, a, you know, a wilderness fast. That's what we do. So in the uh, school's program, there are three elements that we uh, offer up. They're often referred to as the three taboos. I prefer calling them the three sacrifices, which is to say that for four days and four nights, a person sacrifices human company. In other words, they're alone. That alone right there is radical. Secondly, they sacrifice uh, the comfort of of four-walled shelter. We teach people how to make a a tarp so that they can have protection against the rain or the the sun um, or the wind. And yet they are exposed to the natural world, which, to my way of thinking, really heightens the experience of being a mortal human being, a mortal animal in the natural world. So that's the second sacrifice. And then the third sacrifice is no food, fasting. Um, And that is both a physiologically altering experience, which creates a mild euphoria and or altered state of consciousness by about the fourth day of the fast. Varies tremendously from person to person, from fast to fast. So there's the physiological altering of the fasting. And then there's also the metaphor. Um, If you don't break up your day with uh, meal after meal after meal, and instead are left to ask the question, how do I feed myself, feed myself spiritually, uh, that in and of itself is a a, a doorway into some uh, deeper kinds of storytelling, Mm -hmm. uh, reconciling with who I truly am in the world. What's my deeper story?
0: And Scott, can you speak to the importance of letting go of the cell phone, letting go of computers, letting go of all that technical stuff, all the, the, um, uh, all the things that we are really, in a way, addicted to in our, our modern lives. Because I, and maybe, perhaps we can talk about your story at some point too, but I'd love to hear your perspective on the importance of letting go of these things that we're so attached to media-wise and technology-wise.
1: Well, um, what we do when we go out into the wilderness and leave behind uh, internet connectivity, I like to call it the illusion of connectivity. Um, because real connection for me at least human to human uh, happens with i just recently came up with this phrase the resonance of real presence
0: Mm, i like that
1: when we're when we truly are physically present with people there's a resonance that happens which doesn't happen by email and it doesn't happen with a text and it doesn't happen even with a phone call or a zoom session oh my god let me don't get me started about zoom sessions hugely wonderful and really valuable and it doesn't provide the resonance of real presence. Mm-hmm. So when you go ahead and go out into the wilderness, the biggest thing we've done for people when they come and join us is, number one, we got them to mark off 12 days in the program you did. We get them to mark off 12 days in their, their calendar, that, in which they're completely free of all of the usual responsibilities that feed a pretty locked-in identity. And get Don't get me wrong. My identity in my day-to-day is as locked in as yours. Mm-hmm. Um, well, maybe not quite as much because you work more hours than I do. But still, um, all of us in our day-to-day lives, we get pretty solidly um, organized around who I am in this day and, and how I'm going to, uh, uh, the work I'll do today and what I have to do later in the week and, and who I need to call and the emails I get, all of it. So you walk away from all of that for 12 days and you have just created a uh, degrees of freedom a capacity for deeper and more uh, heart-opening, soul-opening kinds of storytelling and experiencing and identity clarification that cannot happen in your day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. Um, so a central part of that absolutely is all the devices. Uh, you know, and, and again, looking at the program that you did with me, you'll recall that we had four days in the sort of wilderness where people could still drive into town, and uh, go ahead and connect to their internet, email, uh, phone calls. And then not until we went into the true back country and there was five days out there of which four days were for the solo, did we really get people to truly disconnect. Yeah, um, And that's the central, the heart of the whole ceremony is that five days of completely leaving all of that behind.
0: Yeah. And that was just such a, a beautiful part of the ceremony was letting go of all of that behind. And I should say too, Scott, for those listening, you know, you hear twelve days being away and being with a group for a fair amount of time, and then five days really soloing in the wilderness. I thought that uh, and it's interesting, I, I was kind of almost rushing into it saying, "Well, I just can't wait to do the I just can't wait to do the solo fast by myself. That's where everything's going to come down." But really what happened for me was when I went, uh, Scott was one of our guides, and we had another uh, guide as well named Betsy, and the two of you together. Um, along with the assistants that were present, really opened the doors to everything happening within me and everyone else in the group. So for me, it really came down to a group. It was a really a, a, a group thing that just helped bring out all this stuff within me. And, um, yes, it was, it was amplified during the, the solo fast up there on the mountain and then coming back again for three, four days and talking about the experiences. And like what you mentioned earlier, the mirroring, that's such an important aspect to what happened out there because you, you dig deep into sort of what happened with all of our experiences. And I thought that that was just such a profound experience. So it was everything from the community aspect to the solo group again, and coming back to the community aspect again. And that was really what brought everything up. <laughs>
1: Well, so I'll, I'll say a little bit more about what the, uh, the, those first four days look like and the last four days, because to expand on, expound on what you've just said, um, the, our uh, task as guides, Betsy Perlis and I, um, for your group, our tasks as guides uh, in the four days before people go out are a couple. The first and the most important is that we want to make absolutely sure that people will be physically safe. Um, we at the school often say, you might call us, instead of the School of Lost Borders, we're the School of Lost Rules which is to say, you've got to make up your own ceremony when it comes right down to it. And if you want to bring a tent, you bring a tent. If you want to eat food, you bring you eat food. If you want to come into base camp and talk to us during your solo, you do that. Um, it's your ceremony. But the two inviolable rules are you have to be physically safe, because if you're not, then you change this, the ceremony for everyone, because then we go into someone's lost and we got to call a helicopter ceremony, which is a ceremony I really hate. Um, we've done that just recently, a couple years ago, really bad ceremony. Um, so we have to keep people physically safe. And then the second inviolable rule is that people respect each other, obviously, really fundamental to what we do. So anyway, um, uh, a lot of what we were doing in those opening days was making sure people had enough equipment and um, that they knew what to do if there was a they got lost or they got injured, all of that. And then the second part of uh, that uh, preparation was focused on really helping people hone their intention. And what we often say at the school is, when it really comes time to do the fast itself, all you're going to do is mark, with ceremony, all the work you did before you got out on the mountain alone. And that work began from the moment you signed up, Drew, whatever it was, many months beforehand. And all of the preparation internally, the conversations you had with your family, the conversations you had with yourself, and then we invited you to write a letter of intent months before you even came. Why are you doing this? Um, what's dying, what's in between, what's being reborn in your life that uh, you really want to go ahead and mark with a ceremony. So then during that last um, few days before people go out, you'll recall, I'm sure quite well, um, each person in the group who's going to be fasting got, oh, 40 minutes probably at least for them to uh, to speak about. We call it the interview. Betsy and I interviewing people about, so why are you going out? And a typical uh, interview starts with someone talking for 10, 15, 20 minutes about all of what's up in their lives and what they wrote in their letter of intent, and this is what I think is going on. And then Betsy and I start asking, uh, we have very different styles. She's a Jungian uh, psych- psychologist, I'm a hospice physician. So you can imagine the places we like to sort of open things up and crack, uh, uh, find crack, not cracks in the story, but really just um, find depth to the story is the better metaphor. Um, and, and I love working with Betsy because we so compliment each other the way we do that. Uh, and along the way, as you'll recall, um, we get uh, Drew Sinatra to drop really deeply into what his life story is um, in a profoundly beautiful way. You got cracked open even before you went out on the mountain, my friend.
0: I did. Thanks to you. Really. You, you, helped, you helped bring it out.
1: Yeah. Speak to that. What was that like for you?
0: Well, I should I should preface this by saying that I actually wanted to do a vision quest, and you know this story, but I'll, I'll share it with the audience. I wanted to do a vision quest, when I, or sorry, vision fast, when I was 24 at the time, I was attending a wilderness awareness school, spending a lot of time outdoors with nature, uh, connecting to source, and uh, I went out on my own and decided, hey, I'm going to do a, a vision fast uh, for three, four days, and I just went out and brought my tent and went out into the wilderness, and I ended up coming back early because it snowed. At a Very, very early time in, in October to snow. So I came back. I felt like a, I felt like I'd failed in some way. But then I spoke to an elder. His name was Walt in the community. And Walt said to me, Drew, a vision fast is not something that you can take lightly. This is a serious endeavor in your life. And so I waited uh, 15 years and I felt I found the time was coming right again to uh, to to immerse myself in a vision fast. And that's when I signed up to do the the School of Lost Borders. And I'm so happy that I did that because my intention going into this, I was feeling that um, I was surrendering. I was surrendering to the process where before when I was 24, I was trying to control the process of this is what I'm going to do and this is what I'm going to get out of it. I went into this one with you as Hey, whatever happens happens. And my intention going in, really my major intention going into this was to connect to source. I wanted to connect to source again and feel that that presence, that connection to earth energy, to the sky, to the wind, to the birds, to the sun and all that. And I certainly got that up on on the mountaintop. So for those listening, really yeah, your intention going into it is is really important. And also when you're working like with a guide like Scott or Betsy, they're there to help refine your intention, because you may go with some idea in your head. I certainly went with many ideas in my head about what I was doing here, but it actually came out to be a connection with source. And then also for me, I found out that I was really there to become a better father for my two boys. And I had no idea that that was going to come out you know, beforehand, but it certainly came out in the middle of it when everyone was mirroring back to me what I was saying and also my experience up on the mountaintop. So lots can happen out there depending on your intention. <laughs>
1: I was waiting, Drew, for you to speak about your boy.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs)
1: Because that was, for me, uh, what struck me um, in the deepest way before you went out um, as to why you went out. And so then I want to connect that with uh, your uh, statement about your initial intention was to uh, reconnect with source. And so then when you started telling your personal story, what was revealed to you uh, and then to the whole group was uh, the perhaps one of the biggest ways, if not the biggest ways in which you express in your daily life, being connected to source is in your role as a father. Hmm. And so yes, connection to source means being on the, the land and in the natural world and, and having spirit with a capital S or however you language that kind of thing, uh, moving through you and, uh, reconnecting you deeply to your deepest self in your daily life, how you father your children was revealed to be the biggest daily expression of that very uh, call mm-hmm. um, and so having those two come together both together as your intention before you went out on the fast was hugely powerful
0: and and then of course being out on there, i won't really share too many experiences because it was very personal out there, but there was a lot of um, reaffirming of my intention with experiences and, and insights uh, or, or you know things that I saw or felt or heard that showed me that I was going into this with the right mind.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I'll speak a little bit more about the preparation phase the days before and say, um, this is not as quite as important as the um, being safe or the clarifying intent, but it's really important. And that is to help people begin to imagine what kind of ceremony they're going to go ahead and enact day to day during the solo. Um, what rituals, what symbols, what, um, movements or uh, practices. Um, and, uh, we, you know, we talk specifically about self-generated ceremony. Um, we're used to knowing in the world that if you go to a church or a mosque or a temple, um, there will be rel- religious ceremonies, rituals that are given to us or presented for us. Um, what we do at the school is we offer what we call a bare bones ceremony. We give the very basics and invite each person to have their own worldview, their own religion, their own uh, spiritual practices, rituals, whatever, become what they want to make of that during the solo. So we've had over the many years, we've had a lot of people with you know who are uh, have a deeply uh, religious calling or a way of being in the world who simply bring their religious rituals into the, the bare bones ceremony of a four-day fast. Or going to the other side of it, people who have no uh, religious beliefs and/or practices yet, who are being called to create ceremony to mark a major uh, change or shift or deepening of who they are in the world, and all of that fits into that bare bones approach.
0: And Scott, can we talk about the importance of, let, let's say, for people listening, if, if they can't, if they can't do this, if they they don't have time in their life, or they they just they have children they need to take care of and they can't leave for 12 days at a time or five days at a time, or whatever. What can people do listening to, to connect to source and to connect to the wilderness? What can they do?
1: So my own personal answer, how do, how do I connect with source on a daily basis? The only way I can answer that, Drew, is to acknowledge that um, I have a very se- severe version of electromagnetic hypersensitivity, which means radio waves, any kind of exposure, I will go ahead and get a serious headache for 24 to 36 hours, you know this well. And I now live a really quite wonderful life in which I uh, have the safety and sanctuary of my own home. Um, I get to do this wilderness work. I have a re- I am just as fully alive and engaged as I've ever been. And yet, I've been sheltering at home in place for seven years, which is to say most of the work I do is either in my own home um, or way out in the backcountry. Um, So to answer the question, how do I connect with source? I have to get outdoors every single day. Every day. A bad week for me is when I miss going outdoors one day in the week. That's a bad week. And so actually, here's the biggest change that I can mark in my own personal life that's a result of the last three months. Is um, Three, four months ago up until then, um, it was enough if I at least got out for a half an hour with my dogs on a given day. Some days much longer, but a half hour minimum. Well, I'll tell you right now in the craziness of the world that I'm living in, that we're all living in, my minimum now is an hour and a half. I need to get out there and walk and walk and walk enough to not only stretch my legs, but to stretch and loosen and open up my mind. And for me, that's connecting with source. But but the other answer I'd give you is the vision fast, uh, the wilderness fast, is a four-day ceremony of being alone in nature. The short form is the day walk. You made a mention of it earlier. And in a day walk, instead of coming together and doing three or four days of prep and then four days solo and then stories afterwards, you come together as a group for an hour or two, usually just an hour uh, to do a short version of an intention council where everyone speaks about what it is that's up in their life and what they want to mark that day. And then people go out for four or five hours and then they come back, they have a break fast together, c- assuming they fasted during that four or five, six hours. And then we do stories for a couple of hours. So in the course of an 8- to 10-hour day, uh, as you did with me a month or two after your uh, four-day fast, um, I will call a circle and get a group together to go out just for the, um, that amount of time. And I, my experience is, is almost anyone can do that, um, both in terms of the schedule of, the, of their lives, but also in their capacity to be alone and be in the natural world and be a mortal animal for hours at a time and all of that.
0: And what, what if people don't have someone like yourself to be a guide during that day fast? Um, what do you recommend that they do to get that similar experience?
1: The best answer I can give you comes from a uh, story from years ago, uh, about five to 10 years into my doing day walks and four day fast and all that. Um, I taught at a medical school in Japan and went back every year for about six years in a row. And the very last time I went, I arrived and about a day or two into being there, I I found myself going, why am I here again? Um, What am I doing? And so the first open day I had on my uh, calendar, which was the Sunday days later, I got up at the crack of dawn and said, I'm walking with the intention of asking why am I here and what am I supposed to be doing on this three-week visit? And I went out, uh, did a walk, fasting alone. It was in the town of Matsumoto, the same place I had lived for a year uh, during the very first uh, visit to that medical school. Um, and by the end of the day, it was really clear to me. I knew exactly why I was there. And for the rest of the time of that three weeks, I had no uncertainty, no unsettledness, um, and I showed up as fully as I could and served the people. Um, and I'll just say in particular, there was one professor, and my commitment to him and one student and my commitment to her that were the major uh, reasons why I came out of that uh, day walk, knowing why I was there. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know. And I didn't know it so clearly before uh, that day.
0: Well, that's that's so neat, Scott. Because when you go out on a day walk, when you're walking out into nature, even if it's for an hour or two, it really helps bring clarity to answer or to questions you may be having. And I think. Um, I'll share a personal experience with, with mine is I've done uh, a day walk with you. I also held one with some of our, uh, classmates from the, the vision fast and you go into it with a question an intention. And it's not like you all of a sudden get a download, right? From, from whoever up there saying, Oh, this is the right thing to do, or you need to do this. You have experiences out there. You, you see a, a spider web that's being formed and a spider on there with the sun glistening on it or the dew on there. And you go down to the beach and you, you see something in the water that's moving around. Or you have some kind of an experience even with the sun hitting your face or the wind hitting your body where all of a sudden it, it almost brings some clarity to the question or questions you may have. And, and for me, that was such a profound thing because I think even going into the vision fast, the wilderness fast was really uh, what kind of a download am I going to get? What, what am I going to be taught here? And really, it was all about the experiences that I had that really helped shape my, my whole experience. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, you know, one of the things we'll often say in preparing a group for a four-day fast is um, if all you do is go out there for the four days and just uh, meet each moment with as much wonder and openness as you can, that's ceremony. Ceremony doesn't have to be, okay, I say these words and I do this action and I burn this smudge or whatever. Uh, ceremony for me, first and foremost, is a state of mind. And so pre- bringing that back to the day walk or a four-day fast, either, either short form or long form, what you're speaking to, that uh, the spider web with the glistening dew and all of the other symbols you mentioned, um, you're inviting the natural world to be your mirror. So you got a question, in your case, how can I be a better father? That story from Japan, why am I here in this uh, And What's the work I'm supposed to do? Whatever the question is, and you go uh, with openness and a sense of wonder and allow the natural world to speak to you. Whether it's uh, a, I remember on one of my early, my second fast ever, four day fast. I sat down and I uh, was in connection with a chipmunk for, I am not exaggerating, an hour. I, let me say I was moving so slow the chipmunk was like wow who's this in a way that chipmunks don't do humans that move too quickly so in that hour I can't—I won't try to remember what I learned or what was said to me but I had a dialogue with a chipmunk of a kind I have never had before or since mm. um, just as that spider web uh, becomes a symbol and you know in a dreamlike archetypal kind of way activates some kind of Connection inside you that opens up, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be about in this with this intention, this question. Mm-hmm. Um, and to do that for hours, oftentimes uh, my invitation on a day walk is to say, look for just one symbol that really tells you uh, what it is you're supposed to be learning today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, if someone finds two or three or four, then that's two or three or four times better. Um, but there's usually one powerful symbol. That sort of opens up and, uh, and says, this is what this day was about.
0: Yeah, and I found those day walks to be an amazing reset button for the whole system, your nervous system, your, your immune system, everything happening in your life. It's a great reset button because you come back and then you just have an amazing week after you feel like you're really grounded in your body and everything. So I highly encourage those listening to, to go out there uh, with a group if possible and to, to have um, um, some ceremony that, that you, that you're a part of and use, use the wilderness, use nature as that platform.
1: Well, So um, I'm, yes, you can do a day walk all by yourself. I do them every day in a sense when I take my dogs, but as you just mentioned, it's so wonderful to have, to do it with at least one other friend mm-hmm. so that at the end you can tell your story and have your friend, if they feel so moved to mirror it back, tell your their your story back to you. Um, and so that's the Japan story, in some ways, was the exception. Almost every day walk, and I've probably done about 100 day walks in the last 20 years mm. with at least one other friend because I find that's the way that I connect to source, using your language, and discover in particular inside of me uh, what it is I'm supposed to be discovering right now in my life. Um, and so having that one other person or even stronger if there's more that's just good as gold.
0: Well, Scott, as, as, we, as we wrap up here, I, I wanted you uh, to share with the audience your role as the counselor in what you're working with people in terms of the, the major life transitions that they might be going, going through. Do you want to speak to that?
1: Um, sure. Well, you know, I, I do uh, the work I do as a rites of passage guide happens on multiple levels. There's um, the School of Lost Borders, which is based in the eastern uh, part of the uh, state of California, and mostly we're taking people out into the deserts and mostly it's seven to 12 day programs. I'm also part of Earthways, which is a collective of wilderness guides here in Sonoma County. And through that, I offer day walks, uh, day-long programs that are local. Hmm. And then the third way in which I do the work of a rites of passage guide is one-on-one. And right now, I have clients in Australia, Spain, Denmark, uh, eastern United States, the greater Bay Area, San Francisco, Sonoma County, so a fair amount of uh, spread across the globe probably about seven or eight people. And uh, some people it's once a week, some people it's every other week. Uh, and usually um, it's Zoom, some people prefer phone. Uh, and as I already said earlier, what I'm doing is I'm um, first and foremost deeply listening and creating a, a space for them to tell their story, trying to help them drop into more clearly what is the intention, of, uh, what is uh, the lessons I'm supposed to be learning right now? What is the deeper telling of my life story? How do I cope with transition and dying and in between and rebirth? Um, and so I, I have to say that I don't uh pretend to do traditional counseling. Um there's a really, you know, there's many things about what I do that are counseling like. Mm-hmm. I'm a physician, an end-of-life physician. So I'm very comfortable sitting and doing deep listening and counseling for people, uh, and I've been doing that for decades. Uh and in, but in this version, whether it's a major life illness, um, the, one of the people I'm working with has probably weeks to months to live. Several people are in crisis because of all of the way in which the world has thrown their, um, their jobs or their other situation upside down in the last few months. Whatever the uh, rite of passage that people bring, that's where I meet them and, and walk with them. And then the other thing I'll, I'll put into the mix is almost everyone um, I send out on the land. Um, not, every, not every week, not every session but as often as it seems appropriate and maybe once every month or two, and it all depends on the person's openness to it. And I'll um, help them figure out what's their intention, send them out. You know, it doesn't matter. They can live wherever they are in the world, Spain, Australia, Denmark, all three of those people have done day walks and invite them to um, first beforehand. We hone their and in- help. I help them hone their intention. Then they walk with that for two to four to six to eight hours and then the next time we're together, um, I hear their story. And then I mirror their story back. I, I, I wanna give one example. The, the person I'm working with um, who's got metastatic cancer and as I said, probably has weeks to months. When I first started working with her three or four months ago, she was someone who'd never done a, a wilderness fast. She knew of it. A friend of, um, of hers did a wilderness fast with Betsy and I actually years ago and that's how we got connected. And I said to her, uh, this woman, um, You know, this is the work I do is I encourage people to get outdoors. And she got quite excited. And the reality was that she she was so physically weak, she couldn't go for a walk. Mm -hmm. So what we did together is we helped her figure out that she would buy a very comfortable chair. A friend would help um, drive her somewhere where that she could then walk for five minutes to get away from cars and people, Mm -hmm. sit in this comfortable chair for an hour, and then her friend would collect her and bring her back. And that was, that was her day walk.
0: Oh, I love that.
1: And, you know, she's no longer able to get out of the house now. Mm. Um, and, I, you know, the work we're doing is profound. And I will honestly say that what I'm doing with her is much more hospice physician-like, but I'm not a hospice doctor with her. I'm mm. a rites of passage guy. And it's been fascinating to see how uh, that different hat changes the way I do the work. Um, I am helping her figure out questions to ask her doctor, for the doctor to manage her meds, but that is all about helping hone her intention. Hmm. Um, so the big breakthrough a week ago was her getting to the point where she said, I don't want to do chemotherapy ever again. And so I'm now helping her hold that intention and figure out what she'll need to say to the doctors who take care of her so that she can have her intention become the path that she walks.
0: Oh, that's that's beautiful, Scott. And do you find that um, it's, it's better for you to wear one hat at a time, or do you find that you can wear multiple hats at a time, hospice, physician, wilderness guide? I mean, do, do you, uh, wh- is it a fine line there?
1: No, um, the truth of the matter is, um, whatever I do, when I, when I was out in the desert with you in that group, I don't remember the details, but that, I'm a, that I am a hospice doctor informed questions I would ask. Not that anyone was physically ill or dying or anything like that, but that all of my life experience You know, uh, one of the practices of doing wilderness work, wilderness guide work, is to become uh, a hollow bone, to let spirit move through you, to listen deeply, to allow the story to come in, fill your soul, fill your heart, fill your mind, and then speak back without ego as best you can muster, and have that be what you gift to the person before you. And when I do that, 30, 40 years of doing all the different kinds of work I do are uh, part of what is the, my own personal container, that bone, that hollow bone that I am, it absolutely determines how things move through me in whatever direction, whether I'm receiving or, or speaking back. Hmm. Um, but I will then say, when I'm working with this woman who, now, um, she's got a doctor. She's got someone managing the meds. So that frees me up. That means the script that I'm working with has nothing to do with what dose of this drug um, does she need to have and mm-hmm. whether we should change it or not. What is the, the, uh, the dialogue we're having is much more about soul and spirit and intention. The day walk she's doing each day of her life in her bed. Um, it's a day sit, not a day walk. Uh, and how can I help support her by mirroring back to her, 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 so her story of soul her soul
0: story. Well, Scott, as, uh, as we close here, we, we usually end with a wellness wisdom, which is really leaving our listeners uh, with some takeaways. What do you want to leave our audience with, with the rites of passage we've been talking about, and perhaps a connection with coronavirus and what's happening with, around the world with that?
1: Yeah, My biggest uh, encouragement is that everyone get yourself outdoors. Get yourself outdoors. If all you do is simply go outside, or outdoors for a half hour walk instead of staring at the computer, that is altering your state of consciousness in the most beautiful way. And then I want to quickly say, but if you can, go for much longer than a half an hour.
0: <laughs> well, I'm wondering if you watched the podcast the last uh, or listened to the podcast the last 10 episodes. So we've, my father and I have been talking all about the importance of getting outside regularly during this pandemic. Because I'm finding, too, that I, I have to get out every single day, Scott, or else uh, I don't feel as well.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, we've been sheltering in place words that we've all come to despise, perhaps the day walk I'm offering next month is called sheltering in nature.
0: Oh, <laughs> well, Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: Yeah. With pleasure. Really lovely to, to be with you again in this way.
0: Well, we'll carry on with another day walk. <laughs> yeah, There we go. There we go. That's our show for today, folks. If you have a question or an idea for a show topic, please send us an email or share a post with us on Facebook. And remember, if you like what you heard today and you want to be an active member of the Be Healthistic community, subscribe to our podcast at BeHealthisticPodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your favorites. You can also find more great content and information from us and the Healthy Directions team at HealthyDirections.com. I'm Dr. Drew Sinatra, and this is Be Healthistic.
1: Thanks for listening to Be Healthistic with Drs. Drew and Steve Sinatra, powered by our friends at Healthy Directions. See you next time.